Welcome to Cross-Border Tax Talk, where we discuss the latest trends in international taxation, from U.S. tax reform to the OECD's latest developments. I'm Doug McConey, PwC U.S.'s International Tax Services Leader. On this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks, we're in our D.C. studio, where I'm excited to be joined by Phil Ramstetter. Phil is a director in our international tax services practice based in Chicago. Phil recently moved back to the States after a nine-month tour in Paris, where he worked for the OECD's BIAC, the Business and Industry Advisory Committee. Phil, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Doug. Excited to be here. Well, Phil, we hear a lot about the OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, particularly related to its base erosion and profit-shifting initiative, also the recent focus on digital taxation, the multilateral instrument, all topics that we've talked about here on Cross-Border Tax Talks. But before we dive in, Phil, what in the heck is the OECD? <laughs> what is BIAC? Give us a little bit of context before we dive into some of the tax topics. Yeah, no problem at all. So just to make it confusing right out of the gate, it's called the OECD in English. But in French, it's the O, c'est de E. So you switch and the E is then at the end. So if you tell a French person it's the OECD, they might get confused because that's not what they refer to it by. So most of the stuff while you're there, there are two official languages, so it's in English and in French. But I guess to take a step back to describe what the OECD is, it really comes from the Organization for European Economic Cooperation, the OEEC which was created in 1948 to disperse the funds from the Marshall Plan. So at that point, after so 10 years or so later, after they had dispersed the funds, they wanted to keep a, a similar organization to effectively promote free market ideas, see what's going well in the market, and kind of push those initiatives. But it really, so it's an in, independent organization. So exactly. it's not represented by, I mean, the people on the OECD aren't necessarily government officials. This is an independent organization that kind of advises or provides counsel to governments. Exactly. So it's an international organization as its designation, which means it's an organization made up of governments. However, the day-to-day -day work a lot of the time is being done by the secretariat. So similar to the UN or other international organizations, you have the, the full-time secretariat staff that is really doing a lot of the drafting and pushing forward on the initiatives. But at the end of the day, the secretariat is working on behalf of the governments. So in this, in this context, you have the, the, the secretary general is really running a lot of the work. But so if we take a step back, so 1962, 1961, the organization is created, like I said, with a small group of Western European countries, the U.S. and then shortly thereafter, Japan. But throughout the years, they've built up to now they have 37 members, technically 36, because Colombia has yet to deposit its um, accession instrument. Okay. But once that happens, they'll have 37 countries kind of across the globe. So I think the old approach to the OECD was kind of focused on the developed Western countries. But the, the push more recently has been to be more inclusive as we are a global market. So they want to try to get the interest from everybody involved. So the general idea for the OECD is, like I was saying, to promote whatever is working best in the free market. Mm -hmm. So at its core, it is a bunch of economists looking at various initiatives in local governments and seeing what's going well, what's not going well. And I think into that context, you have the Center for Tax Policy and Administration, which is the leader with regards to tax rules, they historically had focused in on 
one, seeing how raising revenue impacts the local governments to which they work, but at the same time, and more recently, they have come up with multilateral rules to help implement what they view as best practices in the market. So I think the historically before the BEPS initiative, which I think we'll get into in a minute, they were kind of focused on two things. So you had um, the model tax convention, which was similar to the UN convention or the, the US tax treaty convention, a model for negotiating tax treaties. And then you also had the transfer pricing guidelines, which the US leverages for some of our rules, as well as the rest of the world leverages some by just bringing right into the statute by way of reference. So those are kind of the two of the the instruments that they push forward on a yearly basis to help guide um, international taxes. And, and is that a committee, the, the tax policy? Is that, a, is that a committee or a subset of the OECD? Yes. Yeah, so effectively, so Pascal Saint-Amand, which I think a lot of you guys will know that are listening to the podcast, is the leader of the, the CTPA. So he, underneath him, has several divisions. So I think a lot of the time we spend talking, we are focused in on a couple of those. So I think the, the couple that probably come to mind are now you have Jeff Van Hove as the head of the tax treaty, transfer pricing and financial transactions division. And you also have Akim Prost, who's in charge of the international cooperation and tax administration division. But underneath them, you have several other what they call units that are focused in on specific issues. But a lot of the work that the OECD does is also outside of these kind of core issues. So you have Ben Dickinson as the head of the, the Global Relations and Development. So they have a lot of tax and development initiatives, which effectively are focused outside of just the core OECD countries and focused in on developing countries to try to build their core competency and come up with better rules for them to develop and raise revenue to achieve their goals. And, and just because a country is not officially part of the OECD doesn't necessarily mean that they won't follow the OECD's recommendations. Is that right? Because you said, what is there, 37 countries? Yeah, 37 countries. And, and, and I, I think the tax is actually different than a lot of the rest of the OECD. So a lot of the rest of the OECD may be focused in on that member level. However, we have the inclusive framework, BEPS, in tax which basically, and we lose the number every day, I think it's up to 124 right. countries have signed up to the inclusive framework, which basically says they're going to implement some of the BEPS minimum standards in order to join the inclusive framework. So, so they have really expanded the the folks that have a seat at the table compared to maybe some of the other OECD initiatives. Got it, that's very helpful. So before we dive into some of the substance, so what is the Business and Industry Advisory Committee? So Business and Industry Advisory Committee, also known as BIAC, is now the business organization formerly known as BX. So they're currently going through a rebranding exercise and will now be known as business at OECD. Okay. But effectively they are the designated business mouthpiece at the OECD. And it's not just like they're the most active, they are actually in the charter of the OECD as a set participant in policymaking. So similar to them, you also have TUAC, which is the trade union advisory committee who is basically coming to the table with regards to labor issues. The B business at OECD or BIAC is coming with regards to what the, the business view on things may be. So I think a lot of the time, the work that we were doing while I was there is some of the work done by the OECD might be more conceptual in nature and maybe not thinking through some of the practical implications of implementing such rules. So I think a lot of the work that we did at, at business at OECD was really 
saying, yes, we, we agree with the objective of what this rule wants to do, but we have issues X, Y, and Z, and in order to solve those, we can do A, B, and C. So a lot of it is trying to come up with a system that works best for both the government as well as the taxpayer, because I think a lot of our initiatives, the better that works for everybody, it's time savings on both ends, provided the objective is still met. So I think if you have businesses spending less time, you also have governments spending less time. And I think, as we all know, many governments are strapped for resources, and it's a bigger initiative than maybe some may think that limiting their involvement is 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 very, very helpful. Is BIAC a part of the OECD? I mean, is it funded by the government? Or? So our So our members effectively mirror the membership of the OECD. So we will have business organization members from the member countries as well as some observers. So if you would think in the U.S., we have the U.S. Council for International Business, USCIB. You have um, CBI in the U.K. You have BDI in Germany. So these other groups that are members of our group that effectively feed up into us and we've mirrored effectively the, the OECD structure. Okay, so explain to me how do governments like the US and the EU and these 120 other countries interact with the with the OECD particularly from a tax policy perspective mm-hmm. so they have um, specific working parties uh, with regards to certain issues so I think we'll take tax treaties for example so you have a treaties unit within the OECD that effectively is driving forward a lot of the the treaty work but you also have working party 1 which is doing the tax treaty work. So you'll have delegates from all of the respective countries that want to participate. So for example, the U.S. will have a couple participants from Treasury or IRS that will be at the table that have a focus in tax treaty matters and can, one, help drive whatever the proposal is, but as well as just comment and help form whatever the the end product is that the, the group is coming up with. Right, because fundamentally, the OECD is really just providing recommendations on tax policy and kind of trying to drive policy and law changes in in the various countries. Exactly. So So they are much, they're like a a soft law promoter, if you want to call it that, versus like the WTO actually has hard law that governs the the countries that are members. Yeah, that's a great comparison. We had John Lieber on the prior (laughs) podcast talking about trade. So that, that, that puts it in good context. And so- Treasury will come or the IRS as a part of any of the working parties. They help presumably try to form and inform the OECD as they're coming up with their policies. But then ultimately, each of the respective jurisdictions needs to do whatever they need to do to to make whatever recommendations are become law. So if they need to ratify treaties or change treaties, they need to do that in their respective jurisdiction. If they're going to change you know, law or regulation, then all of that still has to be done in each of the respective countries. Exactly. I think this is probably a perfect transition to go into BEPS and show kind of what the EU did with ATAD because it's a perfect kind of streamlined push as to how they want to go implement the rules. So I think some of the listeners on the podcast are probably familiar with the Base Erosion and Profit Shifting Initiative, which kind of dates back to this 2012 letter from some Western uh, European finance ministers to the G20 saying, hey, we view these larger corporations avoiding tax as an issue and they're shifting profits and avoiding paying their fair share of taxes. So with that, the G20 tasked the OECD of coming up with a BEPS action plan. And the following summer in 2013, they came out with 15 action items. And then over the following two years, they basically moved forward to final reports on all 15 
action items. So I think some of these we'll remember, hybrids, CFC rules, interest limitation, Etc. So those yeah, as you of, go through that list, I think that now the U.S. has ex- signed up to a, most of those at this point. But keep going. Exactly. I think Pascal actually said in a couple of interviews following the passage that he should get a royalty for for all the work that they did Funny. On, the, on the U.S. Yeah. rules. But so effectively, you have a lot of that work, and they came to kind of final reports in, in 2015. And then following 2015, the local governments took the guidance provided by the OECD and said hey, we want to implement these as well, many of which outside the BEPS minimum standards we talked about before for the inclusive framework, they took these and said, we need to implement these into law. So the EU took them basically and picked certain items that they thought were a high priority and came up with the anti-tax avoidance directive, which effectively there's now ATAD 1 and ATAD 2, but effectively set timelines for implementing certain pieces of those rules. So depending upon whatever the local parliamentary system is or whatever it may be to pass the rules, the local governments need to go through that actual process to put it into their statute. Right. And what's interesting about the EU, first of all, before the EU could adopt those sort of mandatory law changes, all of the member states had to vote affirmatively because I think they need unanimous consent. For taxes, correct. For taxes. And so all 28 member states had to agree to these types of changes. And then each of those member states individually has to go and figure out what they need to do to enact those provisions into law. So start with the OECD, then went to the EU, and then goes to the respective countries. Exactly. And so how does or how did BIAC, you know, play a part in that? What kinds of things were you working on when you were there? Obviously, you were there in the thick of U.S. tax reform had just been enacted, yes. in the thick of ATAD 1, ATAD 2 for, for the EU. And I appreciate those are individual countries' laws. But what were you? what else were you working on while you were uh, in Paris? Yeah. So I think I was saying before that they, they, they finalized a lot of the action reports in 2015. But in 2015, they identified certain areas where additional work was required. So that's a lot of the work that was still ongoing while I was at um, business at OECD. So a lot of that work has to do with transfer pricing. So I think while I was there, we got final reports on attribution of profit to PE under Action 7. And then we also had a couple of reports under Actions 8 to 10, so profit splits and hard to value intangibles. And the reports, just to pause you there, those are OECD, the Center for Tax Policy reports that came out? Correct. Okay. Yes, but when they when they finalize a report, so there's a difference between an actual final report that has consensus of the inclusive framework, which those do, versus some other secretariat reports may come out, so which we'll get to in a minute with digital, are non-consensus documents that come out and just maybe have some viewpoints and have some various areas for input. Those are a little bit different in that it's not a final document that a government can really take and say, hey, I'm taking this to implement rules in my home country. So there is a more fluid process kind of from start to finish, which has discussion drafts or whatever it may be to, to kind of get to that final report. Got it. So so start again. So what were those final reports that did you so, see when you were there? So final reports, attribution of profits to PE under Action 7, profit splits under Action 10, hard to value intangibles under Action 8, as well as a discussion draft on the transfer pricing of financial transactions, which came out in the fall. So this is kind of earlier on in the process. This is the first discussion draft. It was quite substantial, the response that they had. So I think they had nearly a thousand pages of comments from like 78 different people providing input. We were 
be as as business at OECD, we were one of those 78. So this was really providing um, guidance with regards to many issues. So cash pool and intercompany loans, hedging, captive insurance, et cetera. So I think we're through this initial process. We'll probably have a public consultation over the next year. And over the next year or two, they'll be working towards a final report on, on that action as well. Okay. So I think with that, those are the kind of continuing work from BEPS action items seven to 10. The other main point that I worked on while I was over there was digital, which I think we may have talked about before very little on the podcast, but basically is for folks outside of the U.S. that haven't been having their heads down looking at U.S. tax reform is the issue kind of throughout the world. And I think the difference between being in Europe and being here is that the digital tax issue is actually something that regular common citizens are talking about. They talk about the GAFA all the time in Europe, which I think in the U.S., we, we, we don't have that same kind of thought process of there's these bigger tech companies that aren't paying their fair share, partially of which maybe because there are companies. So I think we view them more as us versus the Europeans may view it as kind of these American techs. So, so and I, th- I think that was one of the perceptions, too, with state aid as well, that, yep. you know, many U.S. multinationals and particularly some of the, the tech companies were originally targeted. I think that as time has progressed, we've seen state aid has covered a myriad of different industries and a myriad of different, you know, non-U.S. parented groups. But that certainly was the perception initially with state aid. So, um, yeah, let's talk a little bit about <laughs> this digital. This has, you know, certainly you know, been overshadowed, I think, as you said, by by U.S. tax reform. But I think that many of the sophisticated multinationals and policymakers in the U.S., including Treasury and academics, have been rightly focused on it. Yes. So can you just kind of at a high level explain what what is this digital tax that that and and who is it who it could it potentially impact? Yeah, definitely. So I think Go back to, I hate to go back to the action reports or the action items again, but the, actually the, the action, action one yeah. from the BEPS action items was was digital. So even back then, France was viewing this as a problem. So they're saying there's tax challenges arising from digitalization of the economy, and we're not capturing our proper amount of tax effectively. There were a lot, there was a lot of work being done during BEPS, and I think that the action one final report somewhat punted on a lot of the the more technical issues. So I think the main kind of two takeaways from the action one final report in 2015 was one, you can't ring fence the digital economy versus the economy. So I think that was a a very good takeaway in that we had the, the economy itself is continuing to digitalize. And I think traditional businesses or what we view as traditional businesses are digitalizing. So to say that we're trying to focus in on a few tech companies is going to drive kind of bad policy. So we're trying to view this holistically with regards to the economy as a whole. And then the other main item, which may not be as important to the U.S. listeners, is VAT. So they confirmed the destination-based principle for VAT. And basically, for digital services provided, it is the customer destination where that, where that VAT should be levied. So those were the kind of main conclusions from Action 1, but they identified it as needing additional work. So the recent work, I think, kind of came to a head in spring of this year. So you had the OECD come up with an interim report on tax challenges arising from digitalization in March. And that was immediately thereafter followed the following week by two EU proposals. So I think 
Yeah, and before we dive into yeah. those EU proposals, I, I can think about this in a couple of different industries. But you know, if we think about like those social media type of yeah. companies, um, where a user is sitting in France, let's just go back to the France yep. example, and he or she is scrolling through their social media feed. There are advertisements that are being you know pushed out to that particular individual. Obviously, if that individual would bite on one of those advertisements and then acquire some good from, you know, as a result of that advertisement, potentially that creates some sort of connection or nexus, if you will, and whether it's a VAT or some sort of income tax for the sale of that good, right? But not always are there actual goods or people actually clicking on that. Right. And so the advertisers are paying this social media company to advertise on their particular platform. The person sitting in France is just simply scrolling, watching the seeing the advertisement. But absent clicking on that, then there's kind of a fundamental question of should France get any of the revenue for the advertiser paying the social media company for you know, advertising on that platform when really the only connection at, at, at that point is just the, the fact is, is that that user is sitting in France. Exactly. So, so, so I think there, there are two main issues and the OECD identified these as the two issues requiring additional work in the interim report. One is nexus. So effectively the right of a country to tax. So this is one of the like the big threshold questions for, let's say, a social media company or a platform that provides a service. If they have no one in the country to which the person that's viewing the website is based, they would not have what we would normally say a permanent establishment or a connection or a right to tax in that country. So a lot of the push has been that these digital companies are different and whether we need to revise the current idea of needing a physical presence in order to have that taxing right. The other question, which I think, and I think Will Morris, who will probably be on one of these later podcasts, who leads a lot of this work at PwC, would say the real issue is profit attribution. So you can say a right to tax, like I think governments are going to come up with a way to tax if they have to. The real question is, is what value, if anything, is attributable to that person that's going on the site? And that's where you get into difficult issues because a lot of the time, one, just from a calculation perspective, it's difficult. But two, you are then divvying up the pie effectively between the various countries as to where profits are going to be taxed. So a lot of the the governments now have a sovereign right to tax and want this revenue. But at the same time, it's a push and pull on both ends. And I think the goal for business is not to have double taxation. And I think that's the goal for the OECD, which as a result, means you're going to be pushing revenues and income from one country into another. Yeah. So it's interesting. So as you think about, you know, the various stakeholders, whether it's the U S government or various businesses and industries, you know, maybe they just acknowledge, okay, there is some sort of nexus, you know, Mm -hmm. arguably whether that my example constitutes nexus in France because that user is sitting there. But even if you would then consent or agree that there is nexus, then you say, well, listen, there's nobody doing anything. There's no significant people functions, there's exactly. no value added activities. So, you know, until there is actually some good or something that that creates that nexus in that particular jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. So so then let's kind of so so that's the the theoretical, I guess, even before we leave that, you know, it's not just social media companies that 
um, interact with various countries like that. I mean, all any type of widget companies, so industrial product, consumer product companies, presumably, even if they don't necessarily have a social media feed, how they're interacting with their distributors, whether it's from the parent company's group or from a European headquarters, I guess do how or why do the non-digital companies get concerned that they could be impacted or folded into these these provisions? So, so, so I think on just from a definition perspective, it's very difficult to designate certain revenue streams or business lines. And I think a lot of our clients are having issues with how that definition would be drawn up. So for example, we have the internet of things now. So there are a lot of companies that make things. So they make a tractor and that tractor has a lot of data points that it incurs. So how it's operating or think like aircraft engine, there are a lot of data points that they are now extracting from those devices. So that data is being sent through the Internet of Things back to some central processor. So we think of customer data because I think we're close to it, but there's also a bunch of data from things. Yeah, health so, tracking. Like I, because people talk about the IoT, the Internet of yeah. Things. The way I think about it, an easy example is just the everybody's wearing the various types of health trackers, health monitors. That's being sent to your phone and ultimately is being sent to wherever you might have consented where that information is going. Yeah. That is is IoT. Exactly. So, so I think, and this is probably a good way to highlight some of the EU, so the European Commission's uh, DST, which came out in the spring. So one of the three targeted activities was the transfer of data is effectively all it said. So it didn't require sale, didn't require to be a customer, just said the transfer of data. So I think a lot of broader definitions like that are troubling to a lot of our clients that have cross-border data flows all throughout the world and effectively how to, how to track that. So I think with that, I think it's really prevalent because we had some announcements this week from, from the EU on the DST, but so the, the DST is the digital services tax. Mm -hmm. So effectively a 3% revenue-based tax on certain revenue streams. So first you have online advertising, two, you have services provided from a digital platform. So think uh, car sharing or um, online hotel booking, et cetera. Okay. And then the third was the transfer of data. So we heard this week that effectively the EU is dropping the DST as currently drafted and the Germans and French are going to push forward with a curb back version of the DST that effectively would focus solely on online advertising. So social media, search engines, et cetera. So and these are individual initiatives by France and by Germany. There's not consensus. This is not like Correct. the anti-tax avoidance directive or all the member states. This is discussions that have been taking place at the OECD and now with the EU. And these are just certain member states within the EU that are looking at these particular types of provisions. Exactly. So, and, and they are they are looking to the OECD to come up with a multilateral solution. But there is so much political pressure in a lot of these European countries that they just feel the need to act now. So they're not trying to undermine, or at least they're saying they're not trying to undermine the OECD work. And actually the latest proposal by, by France and Germany has what they call a sunrise clause. So it really wouldn't come into effect until 2021. Then they also would have a sunset or sunset operation mechanism to, to cut the tax by 2025. 
So effectively, there's just this big push, as I was saying before, politically to do something, especially in France. So a lot of the newspapers have picked this up that they don't believe some of these tech companies are paying their fair share. And as a result, President Macron of France has really taken this as an issue to heart that he wants to pass something on. And I think it's he has put forth a lot of political capital to get something passed. So France is still one of the main players in the EU, and I think that's why a lot of us think something is going to be done, just because of so much political effort has been put into this. But so that is the the EU work. So I think we can kind of step away from the EU work, EU work, and get back to the OECD work. So as I was saying, the OECD came up with an interim report in the spring, but their more recent work is more broad. So effectively, they're trying to come up with a long-term solution to this digital problem that I mentioned before. As people don't have nexus or they don't don't have profit attribution rules to kind of designate profit to this so the latest is the g5 and g7 countries are effectively pushing forward three proposals that the oecd is looking at as potential options for a long-term solution the first of which we understand was put forth by the u.s would put additional value in market or marketing intangibles. So if you would think they would effectively say there is some sort of IP locally for this market or marketing intangible, and as a result, we're going to remunerate them some sort of amount. So I think big picture you have, if you say it's a unique intangible, then you get into like all the profit split stuff that I talked about before, which could be a giant mess for a lot of our clients pushing out additional profit into the markets in which they sell product or provide services. Mm The other option would be, is there some sort of more formulary way to push out additional profit to the local markets in which you're doing business? So that is the U.S. point that they're pushing for or proposal they're pushing forward right now. I think it's important for clients listening as this is not focused on digital at all. Right. It is broad impact for the whole economy. So everybody that has any sort of value attributable to a good that has any sort of margin in what they're selling, they're probably going to be impacted by this if if something would be decided by the OECD. The other proposal is what they're calling the UK proposal, which effectively would assign additional value to user participation. So this is what you were getting to before. If somebody's on a social media site, do you try to track those users and attribute some value to them? So the UK, while I was saying the in the spring and March that the OECD and EU were doing a bunch of work, the UK also put out a position paper in the spring that effectively outlined um, their position, which would attribute additional value to these users. So conceptually, their view is that a user is different than a normal customer because a user is part of the supply of whatever good or service is being provided, whereas a customer is just on the demand side. Um, when you get into the details of that, it's a lot more difficult to kind of hash that out. And well, say, yeah, because you, you, it sort of makes sense. Initially, you're like, well, yeah, eyeballs are really important. Everybody knows that they want to be able to get, they get value from the eyeballs. But then when you start to peel back that onion, well, how do you know how much time somebody is spending, you know, listening to your podcast or watching a particular social media or do they just yeah. scroll through it? And when you start to think about like how much, how you would determine the profits related to that that seems like a very difficult question. Yes, very, very difficult. So I think you have different degrees of participation. So you have active participation versus passive. So posting a video on a site versus simply clicking to open your web browser, I think are different levels of participation. Then you also have just not all users are created equal, right? Like some of us have higher spending power than others. 
others are putting out negative things on the website. So if you want to think Facebook, for example, you have a lot of bad actors on there that they have to monitor to basically prevent from putting out bad things. If you're going to try to come up with some formulary way of apportioning this value, you're going to be assigning just as much value to that person as you are to Lady Gaga or somebody famous on the platform. So there is just a lot. The devil is in the details of trying to do that. I think some are saying, yes, there may be more value attributable to this user participation, but the real question is, how would you do that? And I think the U.S. view is that we are open to kind of pushing more value out to the market or user, whatever it may be, but we want a holistic approach to this that's not fully focused on focused on digital companies. So we have the U.S., the U.K., was there a third? There's a third. So the, the third was originally, originally put forward by the Germans, which now supported by the French as well, um, which is the idea of a minimum tax. So I think there's kind of two sides to their minimum tax idea. First, you have a CFC type minimum tax. So for the US listeners, I think we talked about guilty on a prior Mm -hmm. podcast. So a a global minimum tax to kind of all of your foreign subsidiaries. This would basically, there'd be a backstop. In addition to that, that would be similar to the US beat or the German license barrier rules, which would effectively deny deductions at the payor level when those are paid to jurisdictions that have a low rate of tax. So it's basically trying to catch on both ends. I think the, the, the question that a lot of people have is that this really isn't getting to the inherent question we raised earlier as to the taxing rights. Mm-hmm. It's more of an anti-abuse provision versus a systematic change in kind of how we're taxing this profit in the system. Well, Phil, it's going to be really interesting to see how this continues to develop. This has been an incredibly dynamic area, continues to be a very dynamic area. Um, Unfortunately, I think we're going to have to leave it there. But I think as we see various countries start to implement these rules, we can revisit this topic at a later podcast. It also begs the question of, well, how are each of the respective jurisdictions going to structure these tax Um, These taxes, is this something that could be um, subject to the foreign tax credit, for example, as I start thinking thinking about this and hearing about this, like, how do you structure that tax? Is it actually on gross income? Is it on net income from a credibility perspective, putting my U.S. tax hat on? All kinds of interesting questions, both from a U.S. as well as a policy perspective. So is that just so one minor thing on that on that point, something is going to happen on this. So whether it is a consensus approach by the OECD that everybody agrees to or just a bunch of local governments are going to start implementing rules. So I think it's something that everybody needs to track and that something is going to happen. I don't think we know exactly what that is yet, but there will be action in this digital space over the coming years. Yeah, great point. Um, at least with, with BEPS, for example, they had the consensus mm-hmm. and you kind of know what direction people are going. At this point, we have a lot of different countries running in a lot of different directions, and obviously that creates uncertainty. And as we all know, uncertainty is probably the number one issue for for business. And so trying to understand how each of those respective jurisdictions are going to implement those laws. Ideally, there is some sort of consensus framework that that we'll see. So thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks. Thanks again to Phil Ramstetter, a director in PwC's International Tax Practice. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's International Tax Services Leader in the U.S. Stay tuned in two weeks for another exciting edition of Cross-Border Tax Talks. (music) 